and welcome for the fourth time so to the post-Thanksgiving Sunday service. So why is this a special service? I guess it's not really any more special than any other Sunday service. Just, I think I've gotten to preach for the last eight years on the post-Sunday service, so it's something that's a little special to me. And as I've said, we've starting, uh, we're starting this series on marriage. And, you know, for me, it's, I think it's very appropriate just having celebrated Thanksgiving. You know, in my own life, of all the earthly gifts that I have just received and seen and experienced over my life, you know, my marriage to Kim is the one that I'm most thankful for. And so just... Um, in fact, I, I tell Kim that God loves me way more than he loves her uh, because he gave her to me, and all she got was me in the deal. So, you know, we, uh, we all come to marriage with different perspectives and thoughts. But the question, what is marriage really about, is actually rarely, if ever, asked. I've done a lot of premarital counseling and, just, uh, and, and the very first uh, session where the, the new engaged couple comes to me saying, you know, we want premarital counseling. And they come thinking that, oh, this is going to like fireproof their marriage or something. This is going to be the immunization. Like you get this and you don't get the mumps. So you won't have trouble. And invariably, when I ask them, you know, when I ask them, what do you want to get married for? They give all kinds of lovey-dovey answers and things. Oh, we love each other so much. We're looking so forward to having a life together and doing these things, having family. But when I ask them the question, what is marriage about? All I've gotten is just blank stares and dumbfounded looks as if to say, whoa, we're supposed to know what it's about? And... The thing is, is that the Bible says a lot about marriage. And if we ignore what the Bible has to say, you know, then we go into marriage at our peril. So, what is it about? Well, an always helpful way to come at something is to start at the very beginning. And for us, the very beginning is Genesis. And so today's passage comes to us from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. And I'll read some of it right now. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and on. And it's also found uh, printed in your bulletin if you don't have your Bibles. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so at this point, you know, just uh, in the creation narrative, the universe has been made and Adam has been made. But, uh, you know, so we, we have our first parent, not first parents. So they didn't start of Adam as start as Adam and Eve, did they? It wasn't Sonny and Cher. It, this, at this point, it was just Sonny. For you teenagers, look it up. And 
up to this point in creation, everything was good. Not just good, it was good and good and again and again good. Because it's God. He's making all things. He knows what he's doing. Of course it's good. But then we get to right here in verse 18, and we have the very first not good. If this was a music or a movie or a TV show or, you know, just, and there was some soundtrack, it would be at this point that the happy music and everyone bustling around doing their own things, that music would stop and everyone would just look to something that's just offended everyone. This is God's perfect creation. How could it be that there could ever be anything not good in it? Did God mess up? Why does Adam need a helper? In fact, why was he lonely at all? Never mind the animals that God placed him in charge of. God himself was there to keep Adam company. Why wasn't God enough? And we see the answer to this actually in the previous chapter, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Out of all the creatures of the earth, man alone was created in God's image. And when God is saying our image, this isn't like the Queen of England using a royal we are not pleased, or something like that. There was no concept of the royal we in ancient Hebrew. And God wasn't pointing to the angels and saying, hey, you guys and me, let's make mankind in our image. No. We see that God existed in eternity before anything was made, but he was never alone. You know, what are the first catechism questions that we teach our kids? How many gods are there? Just one. But how many persons in God are there? And there are three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so God has in eternity enjoyed fellowship relationship, and joyful communion and communication. And so when the creature was made in God's image, it makes total sense that man would need relationship with someone like himself. And that no dogs or deer or dolphins, what have you, would suffice for that need. We were created for relationship with other people. So Adam needed someone like him to have relationship with, and this person would be a, a suitable helper. And that's, another, that's a word that needs some expansion, and, uh, explanation, because in English it's a pretty weak word, like, uh, you know, pastor is a good word. Assistant pastor, kind of, you know, just, so... Um, That's not what this word helper is. And so let me elevate that understanding. You see, in the Bible, this word 
is used most often to describe God himself. Specifically, God as the divine warrior, the one who saves his people. This sort of helper assumes a very necessary help that the person cannot provide for him or herself. You know, we, we know this word in one song. Out of all the songs that we sing, it's come thou fount of every blessing. You know, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. And one of the verses is, here I raise my Ebenezer. And what are we doing? In that song, if you've never known what you were singing, you're raising up the one strong helper, God, and you are praising and magnifying him. You were calling to him for help. Now, what sort of help did Adam need? You know, just if you read, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. Well, so far, it seems like Adam was doing pretty well with the entire animal naming gig. All right? Didn't need much help there. Then what? What task had God given him that he would need help, real and strong help for? And there's only one thing from the text that we can tell, that we can see that Adam had to do. Obey God's word. And God's command at this point was just to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God created Eve to help Adam follow and obey God. And right there you see the purpose, the whole reason for having humanity as opposed to a single human, a single person, was that we might help each other follow and obey God. You know, there are many benefits to marriage. And I'm not detracting from any of them. You know, we see that it's the end to loneliness, the potential division of labor, sex, the joining of assets, the making of babies. Did I mention sex? There are wonderful benefits to be found in marriage, but if you focus on any single one of those things and say that that is what you are looking for, the end of loneliness, or babies, you're just desperate to have kids, or man, you want tax breaks. You have missed the mark. Because like the bicycle wheel that John loves bringing out, where there's a hub, one center to it, marriage has one central purpose. Only one thing that is meant to be at the center, which gives order to everything else, and that is helping each other follow and obey God. Now, This is pretty radical because you never hear this from anyone. You never hear anyone saying this or teaching this. If you hear self-help books on marriage or marriage counselors, you see them trying to make them tolerate and deal with each other better. But even dealing with each other better is not the end result. 
We were made for more. Marriage was given for more than that. You know, how many people go into any kind of relationship? Because, you know, this is specifically talking about marriage, but it applies to all of our relationships, our friendships, our families, our neighbors, our coworkers. But especially in marriage, how often do you go into this relationship thinking about helping the other person follow and obey God? You know, we can talk all we want about how in love a couple is, how fun it is to be together, how to communicate, the sort of families we each come from, how to handle money or kids. But if we don't start with the premise that God gave us marriage to help us follow and obey Him, we've missed the whole point. It's like, you know, I like guns, right? It's like taking a gun and saying, hey, this is kind of, this is made of pretty sturdy stuff. I'm going to use it as a hammer. Not what it was meant for. And you might kill yourself using it that way. You know, all relationships are meant to be vehicles that direct us and each other to following after God. I guess marriage is to be held above all other relationships, though, because no one sees or wants to see someone as closely as in marriage. And this was God's good and perfect plan. See, what do we see? But for no Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. What was Adam's response? He saw God's goodness in creation. Because what he says, this is actually him bursting into song. Have you ever done this? You were just so overcome with how amazing something was before you that you had to break into poetry or song. And Adam sings. This is now at last. You see that word now should be just rendered at last, finally, because who knows how long Adam, Adam was like naming animals for. There are a lot of animals out there. At last, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. One who is like me, yet different. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And not they felt no shame because they were like Adonis and Aphrodite. It's not that their bodies were just amazing, six-packs and like 10 or whatever good fat percentages. It's because there was nothing to be ashamed of. There was nothing wrong within them. There was nothing that had to be hidden. And so nothing separating the two from each other and from following after their God. And so it's a good start to the story. But we know it didn't end there with that happy start. And so the second point of today's message is humanity's tragic failure in marriage 
See, Adam and Eve sinned against their creator God, but now we can see why they failed and why we're all in the mess that we're in. And it wasn't because marriage was somehow a flawed gift. If Eve was supposed to help Adam, what happened? It was because they had forgotten what their marriage was supposed to be about. See, Satan approaches Eve, the helper first, and asks a simple question. What did God say? Did God really say this? And mind you, Adam and Eve didn't have all of this at this point. They just had one sentence. And so it should have been an easy, open and shut case. Eve should have said, God said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Open and shut. Case closed. But instead, Eve replies with, you must not eat from the, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Is that what God said? You know, in your mind, certainly as I was growing up, I was thinking, well, okay, that's, that's good. I mean, touching it's bad, so, or eating it's bad, so not touching it will mean never getting close enough to be in trouble. But she didn't call it what it was. And she didn't say what God said. And you start seeing discontent. Saying, I'd like to look at it a different way, but I'm going to just go along. That is not what God said. That is not the word of the Lord that was given. And so the helper falls short and fails in reminding her husband to follow and obey God. But Adam is even worse. Because the Bible never says that sin entered the world through Eve, but through Adam. And the Bible says that he was right there with her. You know, just serpents telling these lies, you know, and what's happening? It's not that Eve was just having this discourse with the serpent and, oh yeah, it's good, crunch, tastes good too. And then she walks across to the other end of the garden where Adam's working and says, hey honey, you should try this out. The Bible says that he was right there. The heck was he doing? What was his job? His job was also to help his wife follow and obey God. And so when he heard the serpent spouting lies and suggesting to disobey God, his role as protector and guardian over all the garden and his wife should have kicked in and they should have been eating dead serpent that night. He should have protected his wife and crushed the serpent. And then, maybe if he was on the other side of the garden and Eve had done what she had done and come and said, hey, honey, look what I did. Well, maybe he could have said, God, forgive my wife for what she's done in disobeying you and take my life instead, for I love my wife. 
And at, at least he could have acted as, as her protector there. But sadly, that's not how it happened, is it? And now the couple that felt no shame knew shame and had to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And the Bible and picture Bibles give this nice picture of nicely threaded leaves, you know, just... Have you ever tried to sow leaves? It doesn't work. So I'm thinking mud. Mud and leaves. And it's a pathetic picture. Because they weren't trying to cover their nakedness. They were trying to cover their sinfulness. And there is no covering alive that would have done that for them. And when God asks Adam what happened, instead of protecting his wife, he sells her out. He blame shifts on her and on God. Listen, he says, the woman. He could have said, my wife. But instead he says, the woman that you gave me. Because did I ask for her? She gave me some fruit from the tree. Okay, so lots of words to say about what his wife had done. Lots of words to say about what God had done. And one word, because in Hebrew it's one word. One word to say what he had done. Ayat. As if to sweep his part under the rug. And then when God asks Eve what happened... She says, instead of, instead of obeying and following God's perfect word, she listened to the serpent and was deceived. So you have a pretty quick collapse. And you ask the question, where's the love? You know, and we all know this too well. You know, I started saying that my marriage to Kim is the thing that I'm most thankful for. But I'll tell you, if I can blame Kim for something, you know I'm going to do it. You know, we have inherited this wicked tendency to separate ourselves because there are barriers there, and ultimately it is sin. And so we are not just dead in our transgressions, but we are dead in our relationships. And what they were meant to be cannot function. But thanks be to God that he does not leave us in that state. And our third point is Jesus' triumphant redemption of marriage. You see... We know and we preach at this church how Jesus rescues us from this selfish, sinful life and directs us to him. In fact, if you've been around for any amount of time at our church, you know that we're always heading to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's blood shed for us, his atoning grace for us, and his triumph over the grave, the resurrection that gives hope to us. His death paid for our sins and his resurrection assures us that our hope is not in vain. But how does this connect with marriage? 
You know, we know that our Father in heaven sends us a Savior that we so desperately need. But do you know what else the Bible calls him? Bridegroom. In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you, his people. Or Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is sharing a parable. And what is this parable about? Because all the parables are talking about himself, how he is the one they have been waiting for. He is the one that they need. And how does he picture himself in this parable? At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. That Jesus is the one that we have been waiting for. Or the grand picture at the end when all is consummated and all sin has been ended and put down and all death, destruction, and evil is over and sentenced to hell. What is this glorious picture of the end for those who are in Christ? Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, giving the glory to Him for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And so the picture of the end, of eternity, is best described in earthly metaphors as a marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 28, I'm going to read some excerpts from it. You know, just I think most clearly tells us what marriage is about and what it points toward. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus Christ show his love for the church? By giving himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or blemish. But holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So Jesus redeems our understanding of marriage, but also our marriages themselves. Because now you see clearly laid out how we ought to live in all of life, especially in our relationships. Jesus taught us, what are the great commandments? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor with what you need, ultimately need. It isn't gadgets, it isn't gizmos, it isn't shopping or watching sports or whatever trivial things that we sell ourselves to. What do we need most of all? What do you need most of all? I need Jesus Christ. I need Jesus Christ. 
for my salvation, to be my propitiation for sin. I need Him to be my hope. And then I need Him to be the one who sets me on the right path and who keeps me following after Him and making me like Him. That's what I need. And that's what my neighbor needs. That's what my friend needs. And that's what my wife needs. And so, we're being called to love, love, love with what we most need, but what we've also been most given. You see, I call my marriage the greatest earthly gift that I'm thankful for, but it pales in comparison to the heavenly gift that I have in Jesus Christ. Now, what's great is that I have a wife who recognizes that her heavenly gift in Christ far exceeds her marriage to me. And now you have the pattern that we are supposed to follow and obey. It isn't about your needs and your desires. See, most people go into marriage thinking, finally, I'm going to get what I want. And all of you who've been married for any amount of time should be laughing at that one because it's more like, man, what am I going to have to give up next? But when you see this pattern of marriage that Jesus Christ has put forth, what did he do for his bride? He sacrificed himself. He laid his life down for her sake so that she might be like him, holy and blameless. Well, now, when you think about those two commandments, you realize that there aren't two people in this relationship and it's jockeying to see who gets to be on top. There are three people to think of. There is Jesus Christ. There is the God the Father. There is God to think of and both of you to serve and both of you to follow after Him. So to help and obey following God. And then you see yourself as the servant for your spouse. And then you come in third, but it's a glorious third place because you are giving what you have most received. And in giving this love to help your loved one follow after the Lord himself, you are receiving and giving the best that you have to offer because it is the best that you have already been given. So how do we live this glorious, radical truth out? Well, first, let me tell you how not to do it. All right, how not to do it. You don't make someone to be like Jesus Christ by being a nag. You don't do it by criticizing someone and telling them where they fall short, pointing out their wrongs and by judging them. Because it's guaranteed that a holier-than-thou attitude is going to just drive a person further from your objective than closer to Think about how Jesus did it. He didn't just tell us what we needed, did he? Romans chapter 5 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love. He laid down his life so that we would see his love. It's that demonstration 
by which we are changed. And so then, how do we live this truth out? Again, this question is radical. Have you ever asked yourself this question? I hope you have. I hope I'm just an ignorant moron who just hasn't up to this, you know, recently. And, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to bet on that. Even asking yourself that question is a start. How do I help? And let me universalize this again. How do I help my wife? How do I help my husband? How do I help my friends? How do I help my family members, my coworkers and neighbors, be more like Jesus? And lift up prayers, prayers that says, God, I want you to use me so that they love you even more. And if they don't know you, well, they can't love you without knowing you, so then help me be that demonstration of love to them and help me give the words of life to them that they might know you and then love you as I love you. And then, read God's word together. Sing together. You know, I love how many of our couples in our church go to home fellowship groups together. Do that. Do more of that. Worship together. Pray with each other. And start praying for each other and praying, raining down blessings on the one that you love. You know, again, for those who aren't married, and this message is still for you, you know, whether you are in hard marriages and hope is hard to see, whether that you are no longer married, whether by death or, and or by sadness, still this message is for you. Because the whole point, the whole end result of all of our relationships is supposed to be that we turn each other toward Jesus Christ. You can do that in whatever relationships you have, whether you're the aunt, the grandmother, the godfather, whether you're the friend. In fact, seek out friendships where you do this, where you can have this. You know, what's nice is the Apostle Paul says not everyone should aspire to be married. All right? He doesn't set up marriage as the high thing that everyone should be going for. Why? What does he say? He says, you know what? You'll have so much more time and energy to focus on giving glory to God and doing the ministry of the Word. So some of you ought to be like me, Paul says, and not be married. But if you're going to be married, do what you would have done with that time and focus it on your spouse and seek that same result. Seek relationships where you can be this sort of sanctifying, sacrificing blessing in someone else's life and pray that also the Lord will bring others who might love you this way as well because you need help too. You know, for those of you who are still looking forward to marriage, this is the way that you prepare yourself in your friendships, in your relationships. Do this so that it's not a surprise if the Lord blesses you with a chance to be married. 
the question of what's the purpose of marriage? What's the real point? Ask yourself, all of you, what can I do today? How do I help my spouse see Jesus and follow Jesus? This changes everything. The closing song today is enough. All of you is more than enough for all of me. All my cares, all my desires, all my concerns. You're what I need. And I know a lot of you love to sing that song. But expand that and think about how Jesus Christ is enough. All of what the one that you love needs, husband, wife, friend, anyone. And think as you're singing this song that, yes, Jesus Christ is enough for all they need, for who they are. And as you're singing that song, be challenged by the grace of God into thinking, how can I best love? How can I best show love to this one? You know, we want everyone to sing this. Let's make it specific to our spouses, our families, and friends. So that, that question, where's the love, is always answered in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we see what good gifts that you give to us. In fact, we see that as you created Eve, it's like you were presenting her to your servant, your creation, Adam, like a father presenting the bride to the groom. And what we have in Jesus Christ is far better than that first picture. Because in Jesus Christ, we have not the one who shirked his duty, not the one who blame-shifted and sold his wife out, but we have the one who perfectly obeyed and then said, Father, let me pay for my bride's sin. Let me pay for her failure. Let me make her blameless and holy. We thank you for the husband, for the bridegroom who protected his bride, the church. We thank you for Jesus who protected us and ultimately in the cross crushed the serpent's head. And we ask that you fill us with the love of Jesus Christ, that we might direct that love to our wives, to our husbands, to our friends, to our neighbors. Because we know they need Jesus because we know most clearly our need for Jesus. And out of that thankfulness and gratitude, let us welcome Jesus into all of our relationships, the one who demonstrated his love for us in his death and his resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 